Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, which is the research arm of Bloomberg LP. We're going to one of the C's in the FIC Focus. Today is currencies, and we're going to be talking with Audrey Child Freeman, who is our Chief G10 FX Strategist, as well as Stephen Chu, who is one of our Asia Rates and FX Strategists as well. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the U.S. dollar and its role within the overall financial framework of, of the world as the reserves currency uh, of, uh, of the world, where most international transactions are denominated in. But that's been called into question, given some of the activities that the United States government, as well as other governments, to be fair, around the world have, have done in response to uh, Russia's invasion of uh, of the Ukraine, uh, Audrey. Let me let me start with you. You know, firstly, thanks for coming back on Fic Focus, um, and and secondly, you know, talk a little bit about um, some of the issues surrounding the dollar as a reserve currency today, um, and that that's and and some of the uh, issues that are bringing bringing its dominance into question. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Ira. Very good to be here again. Uh, so this is a very hot topic at the moment in the currency market, and it, it's kind of a debate that's been uh, in the background for quite a while, but uh, the situation in Russia and the freezing of assets, uh, of, of Russian central bank assets, has certainly revived the debate, and in particular the, the role of the dollar as being the ultimate um, dominant currency on, on the international monetary system. And, and I think at this point, uh, it's, uh, first of all, it's good to remind a few facts. And at, at this stage, I would say that the dollar remains very dominant on the uh, on the international monetary system. And this, the, the numbers speak for themselves. So just let me share you a couple of numbers. 59% of global reserves are still dollar-denominated reserves. So, you know, we, we need to also... To make a fair argument here, we also need to say that 20 years ago, it was 70%. So the dollar has come down, but it's still a dominant uh, global currency reserves. Then two-thirds of debt issuance is dollar-denominated de debt. Again, you know, the U.S. is very, U.S. dollar is very strong uh, in that in that prospect, in that respect. The other point I would make is that um, about 40% of FX turnover is, uh, is dollar denominated. Again, it's a very high proportion when you think about the size of the currency market and the daily turnover. And, and finally, you know, something that's very topical in, in the context of the war in Ukraine uh, is the fact that the dollar along with the euro, so the euro has a great, a great role here as well, but the dollar remains the global currency payment. Um, and th there's a bit more of a split between the dollar and the euro, but between the two of these two currencies, so about 80 percent. Uh, so I think the, the questions, the, the numbers here are pretty, uh, pretty strong. Um, but what we kind of think is what's going to happen next. And what I would say here is that uh, the, the war and the geopolitical context and the, you, you can see what's what's going to what's boiling in, in the background is uh, a continuation of FX regionalization 
So what I, the way I see it is that you see part of the world where you know the numbers I've just shared with you will remain the same and the dollar will remain very dominant. And that's mainly G10, I would say. And then other parts in, uh, in the world with Asia, Russia, India, uh, where the dollar rule will, will go down over time. Uh, and you have other currencies like the yuan and, and the euro potentially uh, gaining in share in terms of currency transaction means and reserve currency. So that's, so that's how I see it. Let, let, let me let me ask this. So so this isn't the first time that the dollar's dominance has been called into question, and it's certainly not the first time that we've seen even something going on with uh, with Eastern Europe that that has caused significant changes in the global financial structure. So you know the the euro dollar market, for example, and and the whole reason why LIBOR became dominant was because of uh, Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union needing to conduct international transactions and being worried about keeping those international transactions in the uh, um, in the United States. So they, they you know, deposited all of their dollar dollars in London and other European central banks. So so, you know, why are we talking about this today versus, you know, even 10 years ago when, you know, 10 years ago, there was some question about whether or not we should have some some form of regionalization and what currency could take over for the dollar as, as a reserve currency. You know, back then, you know, we were talking about the euro was maybe in its ascendancy in the early 2000s. And then you had the Greek crisis and um, and, and the other issues around the uh, uh, around the peripheral debt markets in, in Europe with and without um, w without European um, centralization of their debt markets, it wasn't. It didn't look like there were enough assets to to be a reserve currency. So, so, so talk about some of the challenges for some of the potential um, uh, potential upstarts that that could potentially one day unseat the dollar, and what are the challenges that those currencies have? Yeah, I mean that's a very very interesting part. If you look at the history of European Monetary Union. And since the euro was launched and we, in 1999 until the early 2010, actually the role of the euro was creeping higher. Uh, it, it was picking up, it has picked up. And as you, as you rightly, um, and when I say the role of the euro, I'm talking about reserve currency, turnover, debt issuance, and all those, those factors that I mentioned that are, I think, the full summarizing point for uh, the, the on the international monetary system. But I think the, the, the Greek uh, debt crisis has highlighted one of the uh, still uh, unsolved euro issues or euro weakness, maybe I should describe it that way. And it's the fact that Europe is not yet a fiscal union. Um, and this, this, is, con this continues to be a hindrance for, for, the, for the euro as a whole and for the euro to be able to really challenge the dollar on the international monetary system. Now, this is something that, uh, you know, we're getting a few positive uh, signals in the past two years. Uh, I think with the COVID crisis, uh, you may remember the EU recovery fund, first time ever that uh, Eurozone members agreed on the idea of uh, a debt, a common debt uh, issuance for, for Europe to, to finance this, this recovery fund. And, and, you know, it's, it, it was a massive first step in the direction. And for those of you who have been reading my research, it's something I've been highlighting because I'm, I've got very strong conviction about that. 
if we see more evidence of this happening and uh, again this is becoming topical with the prospect of increasing defense spending in europe and how is europe going to finance that um, and the french president has been kind of hinting uh, again about the need potentially for debt issuance um, so it at the moment it's still all talk we need to see concrete measures being taken but as we saw with the covid crisis it can happen um, it can happen so when that happens I think the euro credibility will get a major boost in terms of reserve currency. Um, but, you know, I think many investors still have to be convinced on that front. And the other point I would very quickly highlight, um, you know, in terms of being a, a full optimal monetary union, hence being a very attractive uh, reserve currency, one lag for Europe is, is fiscal union, the other lag is banking union. Again, it's ongoing progress. But when we get, uh, when Europe gets to a point of having achieved a, a full banking union and fiscal union, I think the euro will see its share increase substantially. But we're not there just yet. Let me bring in Stephen here. And so, Stephen, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the potential regionalization issues. And, and China doesn't have the, the exact same issues as the euro does in, in terms of being a you know regional or or indeed global uh, you know monetary union but 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 you know what is some of the potential regionalization impacts of of um of this and and certainly people have thought maybe the renminbi can become the um you know de facto asian re reserve currency um but uh, you, you know I, I i question that a little bit thanks to some of the uh, the politics around potentially you know losing uh, you know seeing the yuan you know maybe rally significantly against the dollar for example which might be one of the um uh, one of the uh secondary issues that that could arise if um, if the yuan becomes a, uh, a regional reserve currency. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are a lot of interesting prospects for the yuan, especially on the back of this um, Russia-Ukraine crisis, because um, I think just to bear in mind that there are a lot of central banks in this world that, that are holding dollars in their reserves, but they actually have an interest in China. So Russia is an example, and then we are talking about a lot of the Middle East central banks, Saudi Arabia, for example. So um, all these central banks, if they decide to diversify away from the dollar, then of course, apart from Euro, the UN could be the obvious choice. Now, um, this is actually a trend that has been going on since um, 2014, so since Russia's um, annexation of Crimea. So it's not a new thing this year, but then it's just a very slow and gradual trend to now. Now, but however, um, just to remember that the share of the UN among the total allocated global reserve is still very low. So right now we're talking about below 3%. Now that's a record high share already, but then we're still talking about 3% compared to Audrey just mentioned 59 for the dollar and 20% for the euro. There are still a lot of room to catch up. Uh, even though um, the UN may globalize further, so there may be more um, trade linkage with China, hence more UN usage from Russia, from Saudi, but then there are still a lot of room to catch up. Now, I think it may be an overstatement to say the yuan is going to overtake the dollar, let alone, um, not even the euro, to be frank. I think a, a fairer comparison is actually the Japanese yen and the sterling. So the, the sterling and the yen right now, uh, they're talking about 45% of share out of all global reserves. So 3% of yuan right now, I think is totally cashable. Now, in fact, we think that the yuan share um, could rise to 5% by 2025. And hence, it's totally doable 
to catch up with the yen and the sterling over the next decade. But still, as Audrey has mentioned, I mean, the dollar's dominance and the euro as well, it's just very hard to challenge them right now. Yeah. Is there, is there a risk in, in China? So one of the things that, that, you know, one of the things that a reserve currency needs is kind of full con- convertibility. The, you know, um, you know, basically you lose control of your, um, of the, the price of your currency vis-a-vis other currencies when you become more of a reserve asset, right? And, and you know, in the United States, they always talk about a strong dollar policy or weak dollar policy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and there's, but realistically, there's been very little control by either the fiscal authority or, or the monetary authority um, when a currency is, is, a, is a reserve currency. And, and part of that is because it is globalized and, and it, it, the, both trade flows matter, but financial flows obviously in the modern world matter even, even more. Um, so where direct investment is coming from, as well as trade flows, as well as um, just, just generally speaking, you know, speculators taking, uh, taking bets one way or the other. Will, do you think that the, um, uh, do you think the policymakers in China would be willing to give up some of that control over um, the, the relative price of the yuan versus the dollar and the euro and, and some of their other major trading partners? Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I wouldn't say China would be willing to give up entirely on the control because I don't think um, they're going to allow that happening. I think what matters is we have to look at the financial flows as a comparison to the trade flows. So, for example, let's see, um, over the last four quarter, now, yes, there are a lot of bond inflows into CGBs. We're talking about over $100 billion of inflow. There are equity inflows into China equities. We're talking about near $100 billion as well. So this could be large. But then if this is still small compared to the trade flows, so we're talking about the China's huge trade surplus, because that's structural and that's hardly reversible. As long as the share of trade remain high compared to financial flows, then I think China will be more comfortable. Because even though if all these financial flows reverse, for example, now we're talking about a narrowing China-US gap. So China bonds may be less alluring compared to US Treasury, Chinese equities may be prone to policy risk. So even if all this reverse right now, we still have enough trade inflows to counter that. So as long as China continues to rely on trade, and that's the key question, just because um, China's trade has been benefited from the whole COVID lockdown thing, just because of all the order transfer from other exporters like Vietnam, like Mexico. But if this whole reverse, and also China has always been trying to push for um, uh, consumption instead of relying on exports. So whether that happens also matters to whether how China is um, more receptive of the financial account liberalization. So. So, Audrey, let me go back to you just a little bit and, and let's talk a little bit about regionalization. Then I'll come back to, to Stephen to talk about some of the potential flows with the Middle East that, that um, were, were mentioned once or twice now. So, so Audrey, let's talk about how regionalization um, you know, might occur. So, so if we have some trade blocks that, that end up forming, I mean, obviously the euro already is a trade block, right? When, when, when the euro was formed, you know, 20 odd years ago, um, you, you, you all of a sudden had this, you know, large, very large currency union effectively, but uh, you know, wh- where, what might those blocks look like? So if, if the Middle East maybe goes a little bit more toward China, um, are there other regions, you know, Eastern Europe, maybe, uh, um, you know, are there places in Africa, for example, that might wind up being more Euro, uh, use the euro a little bit more, um, you, you know, presumably, you know, North America will still remain dollarized, but then, you know, are there, 
Um, are there maybe other uh, regions in in the Americas, for example, like like which way do they go? You know, you know, because it's obviously in in even in Africa, there's been large investment from China and the like. So 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 what could regional trade blocks look like? And I don't think this is imminent necessarily, but but over the next you know five ten years, how might those regional um, reserve blocks look? Yeah, that I mean that's uh, that's a good question. It's I think history is ongoing, uh, and uh, it, it's it's already happening. Uh, already, we we the clear block obviously, and we talked about that is Asia, Russia, and I would add India here. Um, and you know what what India does is very important, obviously, because of the size of the economy, the growth potential of the economy, and the external exposure of the economy. Not to mention that it, it's an oil importer. <clears throat> So, um, you know, at the moment, I would add Russia to this block. And if you'd asked me that two months ago, I probably wouldn't. uh, But uh, as per now, I I do. Uh, I think for the Africa continent, uh, and and you're right, uh, there's great trade exposure with with China. And I suspect that helps both the UN and the Euro uh, story, because Africa also has a great trade exposure with Europe. Uh, and the euro is already uh, widely used in those red regions. But then, obviously, if you look at North America and North America with Europe, um, G10 in general, uh, I, I would say that the, you know the dollar remains uh, a dominant uh, currency in terms of you know means of exchange and global payment system. But as I said, I think the euro is is catching up a little bit. And the euro may benefit also from what's going on at the moment um, uh, in Asia, because I suspect, uh, and Stephen may want to add on that, but I suspect uh, the euro will also be used, um, for instance, in some in some cases with, with, with the Russia-China uh, situation. Uh, and in fact, if you look at what Russia has been doing since 2014, it has uh, really uh, dropped its dollar allocations already and increased its euro allocation. So the question is, what does it do next? Does it drop the euro altogether and just increase yuan? Uh, or uh, does it keep the euro as well, which I would be inclined to think so. But it's, it's difficult to say at this stage exactly what it's going to look like. Before I go to Stephen on, on the same question, let, let, okay, let's talk about Russia specifically for a moment, because, you know, obviously part of uh, part of this determined is determined on trade flows, right? So obviously Russia sells a lot of commodities into Europe. So, you know, even if they use the renminbi or something, effectively they're going to be paid for a lot of those commodities in euros. Um, you know, what what regardless of what the intermediary currency is. So so is there, you know, is it realistic for some countries that are big exporters um, to really switch what, uh, you know, what currencies that they um, that, that they're able to use as the reserve base? I think for most of the currency blocks that uh, the stand, what's used at the moment will stay the same. But I think we just see an acceleration of what's happened in in Asia and Russia. Um, and then, you know, as you rightly raised the issue of countries like Africa, I also think it'd be for, for now a 
statu quo or acceleration of what's been happening uh, in, in the past 20 years. And probably, you know, for that part of the world, the euro benefits versus the dollar um, and, and, and the yuan as well. Stephen, so so same question to you. You know, what, what do you think the regionalization platform could look like for, you know, various uh, potential reserve currencies, you know, whether it's the yen or the or, or the yuan? Yeah, I think um, at the end of the day, um, how that um, picture looks like depends on whether you need the currency, right? Because you own the currency because you have to use it. You can't just store it there. So we're talking about whether the trade ties um, remains and then we're talking about whether there are enough investable assets. So, for example, um, there is this news that the Saudis, Saudi Arabia, they're going to price oil sales to China in yuan. I mean, like, um, this is probably a thing that's going to happen down the road. Now, I'm not saying that it's imminent, as you said. I don't think they're going to switch away. It's probably just um, to leverage their discussion with the U.S. actually right now. But then eventually they may have to switch some of it to yuan. Because given that um, China actually takes up 20% of their total oil shipment. Now, in fact, not just Saudi Arabia. China actually takes up 20% of the entire Persian Gulf oil exports. So um, it could be meaningful. I mean, like if, if you all settle that in yuan, then definitely there is a point to hold the yuan in your research, right? And talking about uh, investor, yeah, sorry, yeah. And, no, I was just going to say, and, and that could potentially accelerate, particularly some of the oil flows out of the Middle East, as the U.S., for example, you know, gains quote unquote energy independence and um, and and has much much less reliance on, say, Middle Eastern oil as it has. In, in the past too, right? So, so if some of these trade shifts could naturally um, actually end up being a, um, you know, somewhat of a driver of this regionalization as well, right? Just um, just shifts in some of those major uh, commodity flows. Yes, correct. So it could be intricate. So for example, if the U.S. is exporting more shell gas, more natural gas, and that could be a shift in the trade flow that matters as well. So when they're just talking about the currency denomination of that, you're also talking about a shift in actual demand and supply of the flows. Now, I mentioned the, the second point about investable assets. I think that mattered a lot as well, just because right now, basically everyone that parked in China, they're just after the CGBs. And there's also a problem for that, just because right now, foreign investors account for 11%, which is a not low share regarding the market. So going forward, like what did they get? Like we need more investable assets in China in order to lure inflows to hold the yuan. And there are also the issue of um, the limit option in hedging. So, for example, for now, uh, you have to hedge with a basis risk because you don't have bond futures available to foreign investors for CGB. So there are a lot of um, hedging issues as well. Right. So there, there's the financial infrastructure that needs to be built up is, uh, I think, what I'm what I'm hearing you say. Um, yes. With that, we're, we're, we're at time. So Stephen Chu, uh, our Asian FX and rate strategist, as well as Audrey Child Freeman, our G10, uh, our G10 chief of FX strategy. Thanks very much uh, to both of you for coming on Fig Focus once again. Thank you, Ira. Thank you. And with that, we hope that you enjoyed this uh, this episode of the Fic Focus podcast. Uh, today is March 31st, 2022. If you have any topics you'd like us to hit, please make sure to uh, hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. On behalf of Stephen and Audrey, I've been Ira Jersey, and we appreciate you listening. Bye.